Hello and welcome to Turning Point Tactics, the competitive Kill Team 40k podcast, focused on giving you the strategies and tactics to seize initiative every turning point. I'm your host, Ryan, and I'm joined by the gawk to my mork, Connor. How are you doing this evening, Connor? I'm good, thanks, Ryan. Today's episode is about the attacker-defender roll-off. Now, I'm going to put my hand up here and say that I'm the first to just choose attacker every single time, but I understand that you put quite a lot of thought into that attacker-defender decision. Did you want to discuss those thoughts a little bit? Absolutely, because I think it's actually part of the game, which is so often just glossed over. You know, People just turn up to the board and they just go, um, I'm on this side of the board, I'll, I'll, I'll stay where I'm sat. And I think that, that really misses potentially quite a bit of nuance when you're using particularly asymmetric board layouts. So I think the first question that you have to, to, to address or, or think about when you're doing this attacker-defender decision is, is there a, a drop zone on that board that you absolutely have to avoid? So is, is, is there a drop zone with, with such little sparse cover that um, you can't get all the models that you need onto that drop zone? Um, or potentially, is there a drop zone that the opponent absolutely cannot have? And an example that I would give is, particularly as we're looking into this new scouting phase, um, dashes and changes and change of orders and all that sort of stuff and new competitive changes. Um, but it's it's like vantage points inside the deployment zone. Against Vet Guard, that can be a real problem to deal with, with them being able to use entrenching tools to, to, to set up there and not be able to be shifted. So it might be that you look at the board and you don't you don't personally really care too much about whether or not it's you have side A or side B, but maybe you know that the opponent really, really wants side A. And by denying them that side, you can have a, a much, much better advantage. I've had this this happen a few times during um, competitive games, particularly when I got to uh, Warhammer World and ended up playing my um, my teammate Mark. Um, and I looked at the map and I just thought, if I, I, I really want to be attacker because being able to guarantee initiative, or not guarantee initiative, but increase my odds of initiative turn two would be pretty helpful. But in this particular scenario, based on the terrain disposition, I know that I'm almost onto a guaranteed loss if if I get that other side of the board. So I have to choose defender. And I have to choose this side. And I think that's a really important thing for people to be able to, um, to to think about. I think I knew that from like a basic level, the idea of like, oh, I should, if I am defender, I should choose the side that most benefits me and protects me. But you've opened my eyes a little bit there by saying, is there a side that's absolutely horrendous for my opponent? And that's changed, changed my idea about the defender all actually, because the idea that you could force Vetguard or Pathfinder to bunch up and almost prep yourself for a turn one blast strike is it's a really interesting idea. Yeah, and and we'll go into a bit more detail about you know uh, when you're, when you're making that decision between between which side is which, um, what, what what to think about. But and there is a few actually a few other things that I think um, is is quite useful when you're making that decision. So if we start with the from the mindset of you want to be the attacker or reasons why you want to be the attacker, um, and one of them is it's potentially that you're looking for a, a specific model matchup. Now this is going to change slightly because obviously they're changing the way that deployment's happening. So we're now deploying in thirds, vice deploying your entire team. But the, but the principle still, uh, you know, is, is the same. There might be a particular model that you really want to be able to position around. So maybe you want to position, in the case of the Pathfinders, your Transpectral to be able to apply minus one APL to the vet guard spotter from a safe position, potentially. That's just one example. Or, or, or maybe, you know, it's to avoid the commander dynamite as another example. 
whoever it is, there is a, a specific model matchup that you're trying to achieve. And by by doing so, you, you're going to change uh, the, the sort of the, the state of the game. So that, that might be um, something to, to, to consider. One thing I would just put on a little bit of caution there is just be aware about teams that potentially have the ability to redeploy. So Phobos can reset up operatives and that sort of stuff. So if you're if you're not aware of it, like be careful that your opponent doesn't have an ability to be able to, to, to change that model matchup and 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 sort of um, ruin your your game plan. The other thing that you can think about as well is potentially ploys to, that allow people to forward deploy. So I, t- I mentioned or touched on the on, on the um, uh, case of the commander already. Um, they can't be deployed within six inches of um, other operatives. Now, potentially by throwing out, say, um, your own forward deployed model, or by um, positioning your your models in, in such a way, there might be a bit of terrain or cover, or whatever it is that, that they would really want to try and use. And by just by deploying first, you can put a model in that area and immediately stop them from being able to to, to do that. And that might force their forward deploy really far back. So that's a, a, a potentially um, another thing that that I would I would say is is a consideration for being the attacker. But probably the most common is going to be to play for an for initiative turn two you know we've all had it you turn two is, is so critical for who wins or loses um the the initiative and it often begins with with the trading game right there and then so the, the difference is, is only a little bit in, in percentages but if you if you win on draws i.e you force your opponent to go first turn one which you, you can do through a scouting step um, you can play for that turn to initiative, which is which a 58% to 42% chance. Not a huge difference, but I'm sure you've had enough games where you think, guy, I just wish on this turn, on turn two, I had initiative. And it might be that, you know, that, that small 16% swing that's that, that's going to put it in your favour. Yeah, I think I often will deliberately give my opponent turn one. If I get if I win that roll off and I'm choosing about it, I, and so we've matched up or whatever, I've got the advantage... I will give my opponent turn one thinking that I've hopefully deployed correctly. There isn't any alpha strikes and I'm looking to get that initiative turn two or even maybe force my opponent to move a model, which will then open up something for me to react to something like that. We both deployed in a way there's no alpha strikes. Well, that's pretty unconstructive. However, once he's moved, that's now created something that we can try and work around. Maybe I can use a model to try and see him. If I'm playing Pathfinders, as I typically do, maybe I can start building marker lights on him to try and remove obscurity on that model. Those sort of ideas. Yeah, and, and that's another thing as well to to consider. So potentially um, in that, that, that uh, initial selection, you have to consider what your opponent can do. So I've mentioned the Commando. You just touched on marker lights there uh, and, and their ability as well. Um, so that's that's something to to consider and make sure that you you don't give them the opportunity to be able to use and abuse their own abilities um, on, on on turn one potentially or, or in a way that, that you don't want them to. I guess the next thing that we can sort of touch on what's the thought process behind choosing a board side? Now it might be that you didn't get to choose attacker defender, or it might be that you've um, decided that that's the one that you want to do. So. There's, a, there's a, a checklist or a, a thought process that I go through in my head. And I, I think it might be useful for some people to be able to see, okay, you know, if you use the same sort of checklist, then maybe um, maybe you can get a, a better board side more frequently. Um, so the first thing that I'm going to 
look at when I get to a board is like, what does your actual deployment zone, drop zone look like? You know, is there is there enough heavy cover to, to hide your models behind? Or would they be exposed? Is the light cover that's in your drop zone, is it protected by some obscuring terrain from, from their vantages? Um, and therefore, is that going to be safe to use? Or is it actually just a, a, a dead zone that's going to potentially get you caught out? Um, and then how easy is it going to be to then go from that cover where you currently are to then plan ahead your next move? So a really common thing is like, let's say VetGuard. VetGuard have that pre-game three-inch dash. So potentially, if you're, all your heavy cover is just three inches in front of you, that's not an issue for VetGuard because they can sit everyone in the open. But before any shots are fired, boom, all those guys are now in a safe place ready to move forwards. And that, and that can be really huge. So that's the first thing is, is there enough uh, space to keep all of my guys safe? Um, that's probably where I'd I'd make my my first point. Uh, point. Any thoughts on that, Connor? Well, just as you were touching on it there, you you mentioned moving forward, and something that just caught my eye. We we thought a lot, quite deliberately, about deployment in the deployment zone. Do you ever think about what's going to happen in turn two, and think about where I can move my models to, and the the access and ability to get to those positions from each side. Is that a decision that you sort of, sort of goes through your mind? That is, yeah, that is a hundred percent decision that, that's going to mind as well. Um, and it might be that you're trying to plan a route for, um, let's say your uh, grenadier model to get into a good position, to be able to do the strikes that you want, uh, or potentially to be able to get your um, charging models, your melee models into positions where they can get effective charges off as well. And I think that's a um, something you, you have to consider and if you're primarily a, a shooting team, the next thing you, you're going to need to look at is, you know, what are your shooting angles? What is your shooting lanes? And, and how are you going to get access to vantage point if you need it or, or other means? So it might be that you can, um, you've got loads of heavy cover, but it's all able to be seen through. And, and then you're playing against someone that has the ability to ignore obscurity quite easily, let's say. Um, either Phobos or uh, Pathfinders or a, a team like that. Now, as soon as you sort of see that, you think to yourself, okay, right, I can get all my guys safe, but I can't actually do anything with them. Like there's, there's nowhere for them to go that's then going to potentially open up those those threats that I need to keep my opponent honest throughout the course of the game. Um, so that, that, that's the next thing that I would, I would look at. And building on from that as well, you're, you mentioned thinking about turning point two. Well, you need to also think about your your route to tack ops and we'll, we'll go into more, more detail in that in, in in future episodes but it's not just about okay where do i where do, how do i start safe that's that's one point but then it's okay how how am i going to get to a, a position in the mid board where i can start scoring vp that's the next point and then how can i then make sure i have uh, credible threats in positions up the board which is then going to potentially deny my opponent being able to score their vp and that sort of thought process as you go through um, it is going to be really, really important. I think. Yeah, I think every team has has some sort. Of, well, every tack op set has some mission objective where you're trying to get into the opponent's deployment zone at some point, and then trying to plan that route there with safety. I think if you, if you get that wrong in the deployment zone, you're never going to make it. Should factor into your decision making. Yeah, hundred percent. I think as well. So. Um, 
if we if we look at old TAC ops, because I guess um, that's what most of my experience has been, but it's going to read true across to um, to new TAC ops as well. But if you look at like the the, the example of, of plant signal beacon, um, you need to start thinking about plant signal beacon from ideally like the latest is turn three, but you really want to be thinking about it from turn two, and if you can turn one, and you need to think who are the models that I'm looking to be moving up the board into a position to be able to score that. Um, and so I play a lot of, of, of a lot of pathfinders and therefore I know that it's like, okay, right. Sure, I can use recon sweeps and I can use all this sort of stuff to be able to get the model there. But at the end of the day, it's still a two APL action. And it's still, I still need to have at turning point four or sooner, one of my guys within six third deployment zone. Otherwise it's, it's not gonna work. And that's gonna cost me two VP, which is obviously a, a pretty significant penalty. So I just talked then about looking at it from from your side of the board. So you're there thinking, okay, I really want to be able to do X, Y, and Z to be able to achieve uh, my own TACOP goals. But if we flip it round, let's say the board is agnostic to you. You're playing um, security and, and you're happy with, with, with the train layout, whatever else, and you're, you're not going for seize ground, whatever it is, fine, you, you don't care. But your opponent, let's say, is playing Corsairs. And maybe on one side of the board, there's two very easy vantage points for them to be able to get to, uh, and either secure vantage or, or, or do the, the vantage action as per the old TAC ops, whichever one it's going to be. And maybe on the other side of the board, there's only one. So that for them to achieve their own TAC op, they're going to have to go a significant further distance. That's going to be really important to be able to make them, um, make them have to work significantly harder to achieve their own VP. And that's, a, I think, quite a good point um to be able to, to to think about as well it's 100 it comes into know your enemy doesn't it you can know your own team and get a good idea but you know just what you're saying there if you can know what the enemy's trying to do as well that's when you can really start to con control the game and control the board um i've got a question though we've, we've discussed asymmetry quite a lot but into the dark is actually a very symmetrical board do a lot of these ideas still apply to into the dark i I, I think so. I think there's there's still uh, so there, there is still some differences in Into the Dark. Um, I agree with you though that it is probably a a ninety percent ten percent you want to be taking attacker in Into the Dark. But occasionally on some of the maps, it might be that your ability to place a barricade first because it denies an area of barricade within two inches of it might be really important. So it might be that you can deny um, your opponent a certain channel of movement. Or it might be that you can deny them access to cover on a um, uh, an objective in a way that you want to have it. Um, or it might be that you're making sure that you can place your barricade in a way that protects you in exactly the right place. So I still think there's there's an element of thought to it there, but I agree with you because the, because the the map itself is so um, symmetrical as such. It's you know there isn't a huge change there, and well, I really want to have that vantage point. Or I really want to be in close proximity to that objective. Um, so that there's not at that same level, but there's still some thoughts, considerations into it, um, which means it's not 100% attacker every time, but probably 90% for Into the Dark. Not an immediate, but definitely strong. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we also had a podcast first, which is a, a question from the audience. So I think these are really great thing for us because it helps gauge where we are with the podcast, if we explain things clearly or not. 
if we need to recover certain areas and that sort of thing. Um, so we fully encourage people to get in with more questions and hopefully we'll answer them as, as, as the podcast grows and continues. Um, but and we'll try and make this uh, a weekly thing. But do you want to go ahead with our, with our first audience question, Colin? Yeah, sure. Hi, Ryan. So as a mid-level player, I often find myself playing some of the monsters of the UK scene where you can be heavily punished for some small mistakes. What are the best ways of removing those from your game and also avoiding going on tilt? So I think it's a, it's a fantastic question. It's kind of got two parts to it. Um, and actually, it ties in quite nicely with what we've been talking about here initially. And when we go into talk about deployment in a later episode into that as well. Um, and then finally, it sort of talks about um, tilt or you know being triggered or um, losing your cool during a game, which is which is another great point. So I think we'll start with the how, how can you avoid um, small mistakes? I think there is no way to 100% avoid small mistakes. Um, but you want to make sure that the uh, the punishment that you receive from them is is less than um, a a game ending punishment potentially. So I think the the crux of of this usually is coming down to deployment, um, and it might be that you know you've, you've made a bad board selection as in which board side that you, you you you're on, or it might be that you're deploying models incorrectly. So the number one way to avoid um, a turn one alpha strike that's going to really ruin your, your day, uh, which which then becomes heavily punishing from what seems like a very small deployment mistake, is is going to be deployment and it's going to be your your board selection. So, use of heavy cover turning point one, like is your friend, um, and you will see the difference as you go through between um, a new player to the game and a, a more experienced player. So a more a, a more experienced player is is mostly operating on conceal. And the majority of their operatives are moving between heavy cover on turning point one, um, or they're using obscurity to be able to make sure that the light cover they're in is safe from vantage points or safe from those sort of angles. And it's something that I I come down to when, when I think about even the placement of my barricades is as I get that, that laser pointer out straight away, draw a laser line and think is the is where I'm placing this barricade going to be obscured from that vantage point, or is it going to be in full line of sight? And am I just going to put a model that's going to be shot there straight away? Um, and if I am, I need to activate them and move them before they die um, as my first activation, or I accept that they're a, a casualty and I'm going to, going to lose that operative. So um, first things first, stick to heavy cover turning point one, use the conceal order um, and consider where you're placing operatives in light cover. Are you avoiding that um, line of sight uh, to vantage uh, points or not? Um, to make sure that you're you're not getting too punished. The next point that I think will probably help is model spacing. So this is probably one of the best uses for, rather than a tape measure, the actual um, kill team tool for the white circle, um, because that's usually the, the blast size that you need to consider. But it is worth double checking with your opponents. As soon as you get to a table, asking the question, do you have any long range blast? Do you have any long range indir indirect? What size of blast do you have? Because it's going to be nothing worse than getting caught out by an Elucidian Star Striders player with a long-range uh, three-inch blast if you've spaced everyone out perfectly two inches. Um, so ask those questions and understand, and then make sure that you use your model spacing correctly to avoid um, to avoid those th those big multi-kill threats because that, that's re really what's going to get you uh, punished, punished heavily. But usually... When you get to 
the sort of medium experienced guys, they've got their deployment locked down. They already know how to use conceal. They already know how to stick to heavy cover. And then it's during their first term movements where they start making the mistakes. So they'll start moving guys up the board and you get this sort of, you have this feeling of, I really want to make ground. I really want to keep pushing guys up. I want to get short, get as much um, presence up, up the board as I can. But in doing so, that's when they start to make those mistakes. And I, I think a common thing is, is it feels, if it can feel wrong to pass with the model. People go, I really don't want to just, you know, flip this guy over and say that he's activated without doing anything. But sometimes that's actually the best thing you can do with the model. Because by moving them up, and, and they might be the model that, that joins the the line of three to make the perfect blast target, um, you end up putting yourself in a worse position. So I think um, holding those guys back is is, is really good. And if you, if you can, if unless it's going to uh, gain you something, don't don't just randomly throw models into the midboard where they could be exposed to threats. Is is what I, I would think in that. Um, now I think the the other tips that I've got on 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 this this the same thing is placement of engage operatives and um, measuring threat distances correctly. So I'll start with the placement of engage engage operatives. You almost always have to have some sort of credible threats to keep your opponent honest. So if you don't have any credible threats, so let's say you've got all your guys on conceal and you choose fortify turn one and you have no method of changing it, no sight weapons or anything like that. Well, your opponent knows that they can do really whatever the hell they want. And there's 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 no penalty to them, right? There's So it, they can throw a grenadier right into the mid board um, as close as they can to your guys and, and throw a grenade at you and maybe win initiative and throw throw a second grenade or whatever it is. Um, and there's there's no risk to them for doing that. So you always have to have some threats. Now, some teams like, you know, Wormblade, all their models are threats because they can all flip or whatever. But a lot of teams, they're not. And um, usually, you know, I, I always go back to, to Pathfinders because they're such a great team to explain it with. But you have those, those two weapon experts with their rail rifles or with their... Um, iron rifles and and you want to keep those guys on engage but not have them in a position where they're going to kill all your, all your friends nearby with who are on conceal so the only really 100 percent safe way i think of, of achieving that against most opponents is using uh, visibility blocking um terrain or uh using obscurity to your advantage and I think it's that understanding of, of how line of sight works, measuring those threat angles, checking with that laser line, making sure that, okay, if I position this guy, you know, two inches away from this cover here, the furthest that, 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 that they can come to is, is all the way over here to the left and uh, all the way over there to the right. And I know that either it's not achievable for them to make that in a single move and shoot, or you know, if you're playing against uh, elites, whatever, can they move dash to that that point? But if in, in doing so, are they throwing a model into the open where you can then potentially pe uh, penalize them with your other threat model later on? That that kind of thing is is, is what I think about. So um, you have to have some threats on the board to keep your opponent honest, but make sure you use either visibility blocking or obscurity to keep those threats safe. And if you can't do that, they have to be away from everyone else if, if your opponent's got a long range blast. You can't be keeping them in amongst all your concealed optives that you need to keep safe. Um, so that that's that, and then finally, obviously, it's is measuring correct threat distances. This is something that I, I, I see people get wrong um, 
quite a lot but actually is a a, a really good fix or a really good um, tool to use in almost every single game so you can um, measure out with it I like to use a tape measure because I think it's, it's the easiest way of, of getting the distances that you need um, exactly how far someone can move so in my head I think to myself all right they they're going to deploy three inches in they're going to get a three inch uh, scouting phase um, dash potentially uh, they're going to move six inches on top of that and then uh, they're going to th throw their grenade a further six and you go okay that is a, a 18 inch threat range and, and that's why I, I need to plan for nice but then you could also look at it as well what if they had a comms guy that gave him a plus one apl do they have that ability on their team they do us actually i need to add an additional three inches for that move dash and then grenade throw and by looking at those sorts of numbers you can then start to realistically plan how far can this guy get what ranges do they actually threaten me at um and and really take it in, in, into full consideration and i think you know there's there's a bunch of other things that, that that have similar abilities you know some models can ignore the transverse penalty to be able to get further than you might expect them to um, some models might be able to do the free dashes down the side of the board in conjunction with a scouting phase dash potentially taking that sort of stuff in and using all that knowledge to go okay i know that the the maximum threat distance that that, that this model can do this turn is x and then make sure you position accordingly based on that knowledge and i think it's something to be honest you should really be asking your opponent about as as you go through and you can talk to them and i, I regularly sort of have that conversation where i'll go okay this guy can move x and he can dash right and he can throw x wherever it is um do you, do you have any apl modification on your team oh i do actually as a comms all right whereabouts is your comms is he in range of your guy to give him that buff this turn uh no he's not actually he's too far away okay i can now reduce that threat range that, that I'm, I'm worried about um oh he's actually behind a barricade is there a, is there a way that you have to ignore the penalties for that um, maybe it's a worm blade guy and they go yeah i can actually i can spend a cp and I, I i can ignore that or maybe they say no i can't you go all right so to get around the barricade it's going to cost you two inches say and therefore i can reduce your threat range by that again and you can but by doing those sort of smart questions you can find out um what you need to account for throughout the whole of it and i think i was gonna say to, to, to wrap all that up that's a lot to cover off so maybe just make a checklist right and just go these are the smart questions that I think I should be asking and and just go through and at the start of each turning point, just run through your little list of considerations and go, you know, have I have I accounted for a pre-game dash? Have I accounted for a scouting phase dash, a, a change of order, whatever it is? And then if you have that sort of um, that process, once you've done it a few times, it becomes muscle memory and then you're, and you're good to go from there. I'm reminded by something that you, you said to me once, actually, what you said, when I win, I want it to be because I've I played my best game and it's been better than my opponent's game and not because I've tricked or deceived them. And I think that's actually echoed throughout the Kill Team community because I can't think of a single game where I've asked a question and the opponent's not been helpful or not done it. I'll be like, oh, have you, um, have you got any blast weapons on your side or have you got like a medic ability? And they've always been really forthcoming with that information. So what you do with that information is up to you, but there's, not, there's no shame in asking that question. It's a, it's a complex game. You can't be expected to know all the details. We're not all superheroes. Yeah, and particularly when it comes to new teams as well. So I, I took breaches to a tournament uh, a couple of weeks ago. And obviously, I, I'm new with the team, but for a lot of the guys, it's the first time ever playing against breaches. 
And it would have been so easy to, particularly with the cat, get them with a with a gotcha and just say, you know, let them do their moves and then wheel out the cat, make someone go and engage and shoot with a plasma gun that they didn't see coming. Um, but I always try to explain to them that I've turned up and we're talking through kill team selection. This is the cat. This is what he does. This is the ranges that you're looking at. Uh, and these are the bubbles in which, which it operates. So there's, there's counters to that, obviously. I'm, I'm not going to, at there and then at the tournament, explain to you how to how to defeat my my models but i'm gonna make you be aware of you know what it does and, and how it works so you're not then uh caught out in a, a a gotcha situation as people always say um and potentially get get tilted going forwards um i think i sort of answered the, the first half of that uh that question and i think we're probably going to go into talking about tilt unless there's anything else you want to c- cover on that bit connor no let's do it let's talk about tilt so Tilt's a really interesting one because um, it's something that can be really hard based on your personality to to, to deal with. So some people are just naturally cool. Like I think um, Mark's probably a, bit, a good example of someone that I think just seems to be a naturally cool-headed kind of guy, just doesn't worry too much. Um, I I kind of get like a maybe a, a tournament tilt. So if I know that I'm not I'm not going to win, my sort of care goes down slightly which is something i need to work on which then means i can have like a spiral effect potentially and i play, play worse and worse as, as, as the games go on um and it's, it's something that, that can be really difficult to, to avoid but there's been recently and i've seen it most commonly in like some of the elite teams is i've gone into games you know, we, we played at my home uh you and i where i've been two models down or, or let's say you've been two or three models down and half um, the elite half the elite team you lost half your models in a single turning point and usually it was you know it was your bloody aspiring champion with his power fist and plasma pistol he's gone in he's charged a guy he's killed him he shot someone else and i'm thinking to myself in a single activation i've just lost two guys you know i'm i'm out of it and it, and it will obviously be my most important models you know it'll be my plasma pistol my doom bolt or something like that and i think so oh god there's absolutely no way i can i can recover in this situation and then but we just sort of have that, that conversation we go well you know what Let's just play it out because you never know what the dice are going to do, um, and, and that's obviously great advice from someone there saying just just play it out. But remind yourself it's just a game, you know. Let's see what happens um, and, and go on because I've seen so many people that have said I want to concede now, and then potentially like come on to have a really close game. So you never know the way the dice are going to go. You never know what the next turning point um, holds. And and in one of those games, I remember I was two models down from one of those plays. Um, but then I managed to just about crawl it back. And at the end, I think I won by a couple of points, but I was ready to, to concede and re-rack at that point and go, you know what, there's, there's no point playing on because it's a done deal. So really don't, don't, don't give up on it because you, you a hundred percent lose every game that you concede, no doubt. And if you're at a tournament, you can think, all right, even if I do lose this, how can I then maximize the amount of um vp that i'm getting right how can i get those tack ops and how, how can i um try and uh you know get get a bit more out of this game so, so that I, i'm in better stead for, for the next round and make sure i don't lose too much on the uh the rankings and then finally my, my advice would be just during that course of the game if you think you've lost just change your win condition so in your head you you, you can start off the day saying the win condition is i'm going to come first and, that, and that's all we're going to do. Or your win condition can be, I'm going to max my attack ops. 
whatever it's going to be. Um, maybe you have absolute shocking dice and you go, oh, you know, there is nothing to do about this. My dice have been terrible. I'm out of it. Well, just go then. Go, okay, well, my new win condition from this is can I score another 5 VP? And if I do, then it's my, you know, my Pyrrhic victory. I've I've managed to just about achieve the the thing that I was trying to set out. And maybe you lose the game overall, but but maybe you, you, you gain your own internal victory and say, even with that awful dice, I managed to get it to this close, you know, or I'm going to play for the draw. And I'm going to try and make that point score as, as close as possible to give my opponent a really good game. So it's that kind of having a, a, a psychological shift in, in your head as, as to how you're playing it and go, right, I'm going to change my own personal win condition. I'm going to see if I can then win by not winning the game, but in my own way. I think that's that's probably how I would tr- tr- try and avoid tilt. There's an yeah, there's a, uh, I was thinking about it then, there's an interesting like, other side to this that we haven't really touched on. So where, where most people get like triggered, so if we'll go back to that game we had where you lost those models and it looked like a done deal. I also thought it looked like a done deal and it, I got complacent and I started taking unnecessary risks. I started leaving people out that I shouldn't have left out and you just kept playing normally, kept playing tidy, tried to focus on the objectives and suddenly that lead that I'd edged in the beginning was slowly chipped away and that now is a game again. So yeah, don't ever lose your call. The, the opponent can still make mistakes down the line and the dice are leaving out. And that's a, a probably a great point for, for the reverse side of the coin, right? Is you've started off and you've rolled absolute blinder. You know, you've got your vet guard sniper, you've rolled four sixes and you've killed a, an incessor turn one. And you think to yourself, oh my God, like I've got this game in the absolute bag and you stop paying attention. And then suddenly, you know, it all, it all goes wrong. You've got to play the game out. Like, you've got to take it seriously from start to finish. And you've got to keep thinking about where you are during the, the, the game. And you've got to keep playing for points. The game is all about points and it's not about killing people. It's not about how many models you lose. It's about points. And I think that's the, that's the thing is like, okay, well, maybe they have killed loads of guys, but by doing this and this and this, I can get these points back. And if I'm up on points, I win. And that's that, that's really, really what matters. Um, so I love that sort of that flip on the coin there, looking for the other side as well. You know, don't don't rest on your laurels as soon as you're in a good place because it can go wrong in in, in a in a flash. Partic- and I think particularly with elite teams because they're so explosive on their damage. You know, it, it comes out of nowhere and it's and, it, and it's huge. Great question. Do you think we've we, we've covered all that off? Yeah, I think that was a was a great question. Sweet. Well, if we haven't and, and you have any more questions that, that you think. Um, you want to hit back at us in the comments, make sure to get them in there and we'll, we'll, we'll try and get around to it. But hopefully that's that, that's given you a bit to, to think on um, and, and to hopefully make, maybe implement your next games. I think the last thing for us to do, Connor, is to go into our um, our tactical tip of the day, I think. Unless you have anything else? No, let's do it. Okay. So tactical tip of the day uh, is going to be the quote that I've made for myself. Sure. Someone else probably said it first, but I'm, I'm stealing it now. Uh, is dice don't kill people dice with re-rolls do and i've said this to people over and over again right is is it's so important to think about where you're getting re-rolls and it's going to massively increase your reliability and massively increase your probability to kill um and we, we saw it when um phobos came out they're a team that have have no re-rolls like built into their team apart from the the vet uh, veteran and his ability for ammo but, but apart from that the rest of the team that they, they don't have re-rolls and sometimes they're rolling and they're doing great. And I remember playing against your Pathfinders and I had one game and I thought, oh man, Phobos, they're so strong. You know, they're, they're really, really good. 
I'm, I'm killing everything. I'm doing so well. This is this has worked out perfectly for me. Next game, terrible dice. Loads of ones and twos. No ability to re-roll them apart from CP re-rolls or potentially um, the purity seals. And I was like, oh my god, I just can't. I can't. I can't play with this team. You know, I've, I've gone from a, a massive high of getting all crits to, to a massive low of getting all misses. But the way that you can mitigate that is 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 re-roll. So the reason why uh, Phobos are bad in my opinion isn't their lack of ap like they they can get ap uh, or they can get crits and force three damage it's their lack of re-rolls um and that's why intercession beat them every, every day of the week they have such easy access to re-rolls through the tactical doctrine and it makes a huge difference in their um in their play style and you, you, obviously you're you've played a lot of pathfinders connor so you're used to, to having a lot of re-rolls right yeah so I noticed early on the impact that just even having the um, one marker light on made to my, my game. I wasn't really thinking about the math at the time. I was just something I sort of noticed. And then when you actually like look through the data and start seeing what the impact of these extra dietary rolls, because they can get it not just from the marker lights, they can also get it from bonded as well. You can suddenly get incredibly reliable shooting laid down on the opponent. Do we have the stats somewhere? Yeah, so um, there's a software that I use uh, called Kill Team Calculator, and I'll, I'll put it in the uh, description. It's a guy on Discord that's made it, and hopefully we'll get him on for an episode at some point because it's, I think, revolutionized the way that I uh, I look at stats and, and interact with them and, and use percentages, and it's, and it's really, really good. Um, but here's, here's some some base stats so people can see the, the effect. So let's say you have a, a regular Shazla shooting at you with a with a pulse carbine and he's shooting at a regular guardsman with no re-rolls it's a 37 percent chance that he kills which is actually pretty low in 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 the the terms of you know um the game and how it works 37 percent is is not a good chance that you're going to kill that guy so that's that's no re-rolls suddenly you apply a marker light which gives you the ability to re-roll one of your dice and suddenly that shoots to 52 percent so now more often than not the guardsman is going to die and you think to yourself, wow, that's, you know, I'm I'm now significantly more happy with with, with that um, that percentage. You add the mark light and the bonded, so now you have two rerolls, and you're at sixty three percent. And that's a huge jump. And I think people, it's it's, it's hard to sort of explain, but an eleven percent jump in probability is 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 a is a big jump. And then once you get to to the dizzying heights of three mark lights, which is ignoring cover plus one ballistic skill and those two rerolls. You're looking at eighty percent chance to kill, which is just phenomenal. Like, so from thirty-seven percent to eighty percent chance is a huge change in, in your probability of, of, of kill. So you have to consider those those rerolls and how you're going to have them in your list, where they're coming from, and and, and how you're going to use them. Because if you don't, you're going to get diced out. And it's why I had issues with with corsairs when playing them, and it's why I have issues playing phobos with them as well. Because it maybe not during your first game of a tournament series. Maybe not during your second game, but during one of those four, you're going to have a game where you just roll terribly. And unless you can re-roll those dice, then it's, it's, it's not going to work out for you. So that's my tip, tactical tip of the day. Dice don't kill people. Dice of re-rolls do. Uh, don't forget about the re-rolls and how you're going to build them into your list or how you're going to use them in your kill team. Okay, I think that's everything for today's episode. So hopefully you found something new or useful while listening. If you did, throwing us a like would be greatly appreciated. And if you want to make sure you don't miss any episodes, make sure you subscribe so you get a notification as soon as the next one drops. If you can't wait and you want early access, we do have a Patreon. 
where you'll get exclusive access to all content ahead of time. But as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. So drop a comment and we'll get right to you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Ryan. This has been Turning Point Tactics and we'll see you next week. See you next week.